0: Um, many of you, uh, probably none of you actually, I misspoke, uh, know how I became a Christian or anything like that. And um, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't become a Christian until I was 18. And uh, I became a Christian under some really weird circumstances. I was invited uh, to church by a girl. And as a 17-year-old boy, when a girl asks you to church, you go. And so I went. But in my mind, I, I, was, I was anticipating what church would be like and I was just picturing, and I, I apologize uh, for this if this is sacrilegious or whatever, but I was just picturing people walking around with candles and snuggies. And, um, and they're just walking around like I, don't, I didn't know what to expect. And so I went and uh, I, we were sitting there as a youth group, and, and people stand up and they start singing. I see people raising their hands and closing their eyes. And I'm thinking, yeah, this got weird quick. What is going on? And uh, I, I, so I turned to the girl next to me who I drove there, and I said, uh, what is going on? She said, we're worshiping. And I was like, what are you worshiping? We're worshiping God. Where is he? And she's like, he's everywhere. I'm like, no! You know? So uh, freaked out as I was, I turned to her and I said, this is uncomfortable, I got to go. So I left her and just drove back home. So anyways... Uh, You care more about her feelings than mine. (laughs) Um, So I left and uh, what what I knew about Christians was basically this. They were really weird. And um, the reason why I thought they were weird is all the Christians I knew always wore like T-shirts from past ministry things like BBS T-shirts and winter camp T-shirts and summer camp T-shirts. And I thought, I mean, it's a free T-shirt. How, you know, no. Um, and then I saw all the bracelets and stuff. And I remember at this time in the late 90s, it was WWJD bracelets. And if you were super spiritual, you had the FROG bracelets, fully relying on God. And, and not only that, but you listened to particular kinds of music, which I didn't find all that pleasing. And uh, so here I was, a non-Christian, and people were um, wanting me to come to church. And the method that they used to bring me to church was try to get me. To act like them. And it was really, it was annoying to me, to be just quite honest. It was really annoying because in my mind, I thought, what I have to do to be a Christian is I got to wear ugly t shirts and wear weird bracelets, and I have to listen to music that I'm not particularly keen on. In fact, I was a big Dave Matthews band uh, person in the 90s, I know, and I remember sharing that, and all the Christians were like, oh. And I learned real quickly, if you want to be accepted by this group of people, you have to uh, say things like jars of clay and DC talk and Stephen Curtis Chapman. And uh, to be honest, I didn't like it. And I thought that what it means to be a Christian is to kind of indoctrinate yourself into a subculture. And I have to be honest with you, there's many of us in this room that really do approach sharing the gospel with people like that where we come alongside of people and we say, hey, here's, here, here's how you become a Christian. Act like us, think like us, talk like us, and listen to the music like us and be indoctrinated into our subculture and then we'll accept you. Oh, and along the way somewhere, accept Jesus or whatever. What is wrong with that? A lot. And I understand in a, in a, in a gathering like this, there probably are people, some of you who are here today, you do not claim the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior. I get that. And so what you're going to hear me say today are some words you're going, huh, wait, what? What are you talking about? And that's because we have a particular vernacular as Christians. We talk about things that you may not know about. And that's okay. Today is Sunday, the first day of NFL football. <laughs> and, and the reason why I bring that up is, is because of this. If you were to watch the NFL football game today, you're going to hear certain phrases that may sound foreign to you. You may hear the phrase like play action pass. And if you don't know what that is, you go, oh, oh yeah, whatever. It's because you're not, you're not familiar with the language. And so when you come to visit a church, by the way, welcome if you're visiting. But just know you're gonna, you might hear things which are going to be foreign. And it's not because we're weird, although we are. But it's because we're, we just have a different vocabulary. But the reality is this, is um, I was confused, and I went and talked to my youth pastor. His name was Chris. And I go, Chris, man, I, I would love to be a Christian, but I don't think I can because I don't want to dress that way, and I, I really don't want to listen to that kind of music. And he said, well, that's not what makes you a Christian. So I asked the question, what does make you a Christian? And he told me. And I I was keeping a journal at this time for whatever reason, and I still have it in my office. And so I whipped it out because I thought that I I remember writing something down. So here's what I wrote in December of 1998. Chris told me that the church is a group of people who have fled to Jesus for mercy and grace because they, they know that they deserve punishment for sin, which is what he called hell. The church is a family, not because they talk and dress the same, but because they trust Jesus and they rely on his grace. The church is unified by his grace. I don't know what Chris is talking about, but I need to figure out what this grace is all about. 17-year-old kid, and I have to tell you, once I figured out what grace was all about, I was hooked. And from that day forward, my life's ambition is, fu- is to fulfill 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, is to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So everything I do as a pastor and as a person is to try to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 15. Is that we are sent as Christians to in the world to declare the gospel of grace. And when we do that, what happens is it creates unity and it strengthens the church. We are sent to declare the gospel of grace. That we are saved by grace. We are not saved by being indoctrinated into a Christian subculture. We're saved by grace. And when we have grace as the core instrument that is uh, what, what we are unified around and we are strengthened by, the world will take notice and will be impacted. So let's pray together and ask God to show us about this grace and about how to be more unified and strengthened. So, God, would you help us? God, would you come and teach us? God, would you inspire us? And God, would you grant us the wisdom and the insight? And would you grant us the heart to believe what we're about to read? God, your word is alive. It is active. It will not return void. And so, Lord, I stand here. With the privilege of preaching, because I believe that to be true. So God, would you let Your word go forth, and would You let it touch people's hearts and transform them? And God, help me to say it clearly. We're trusting You now in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 14. I know I told you 15, but that's just to get you where I needed you to go. But Acts 14. In order to understand Acts 15, you kind of have that understanding of what in the world's going on in the background. You remember that Paul and Barnabas were sent off by the Antioch church and they had went on their first missions trip. And they come back to Antioch. We picked this up in verse 26. They sailed from Italia to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. In other words, the Antioch church came alongside of Paul and Barnabas and they commended Paul and Barnabas, to the grace of God. In other words, they they commissioned them to go out and to spread and proclaim the grace of God. And so at verse 27, when they arrived in Antioch, they gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now this is important because in Acts chapter 13, we see in verses 2 through 4 that Paul and Barnabas are commissioned and sent off, sent out by two entities, the church and the Holy Spirit. And the church and the Holy Spirit come alongside of Paul and Barnabas. They send them out into all the world preaching the gospel of God's grace. So when they finished their trip, they gather the church together and they begin to declare not their ministry, not what they had done, but all that God had done. God did this. Listen to this. And then it says in verse 28 that they remained no little time with the disciples. Paul and Barnabas get back together, get a group of people together, the church, and they go, this is what God's doing, you guys. They begin to celebrate. They begin to talk about it. And this is a theme we see throughout the book of Acts. If you remember in Acts chapter 10, verse 48, when Peter was ministering to Cornelius and his family and friends... It says, And he, being Peter, commanded them, the Gentiles, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they, the Gentiles, asked Peter to remain for some days with them. Acts eleven twenty-six. And when Barnabas had found Paul, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Acts fourteen three. In the face of opposition, they, being Paul and Barnabas, remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace. You see, this theme throughout the book of Acts is this. If we're going to be effective in gospel ministry, we must be committed to relationships. We have got to be committed to entering into relationship with other people. And yes, brothers and sisters, that means people who do not yet believe in Jesus. We can and should be in relationship with them. Because relationship, longevity in relationship... Being in relationship and committed to people for the long haul is what God is prescribing in gospel ministry. And I think this is a great way. uh, uh, In in a lot of ways, this is what our small group system here at Golden Hills is is really built on. Is that we come together as, as a group of people and we celebrate all that God is doing in our lives, but we do so in the context of Christian community in relationship. And that's an important theme throughout the book of Acts. So things are going really well in this church. In Antioch, people are loving each other. They're, they're committed to relationship with one another. They're celebrating the grace of God. They're talking about all that God is doing. And then we get to chapter 15, verse 1. But, ah, what a damper on my mood. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. And by the way, the brothers there is is the Greek word adelphoi, which means siblings, but it's in the masculine. So we translate it as brothers. It doesn't exclude women. It's kind of like in Spanish when you you say like, hola, niños, it means like, hello, children. Not just the male, or like not you women children, but just the men children. It's not like that. It's just niños is in the masculine. You guys get that? We on the same page? All right, sweet. Here's what they said. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. <laughs> and after Paul and Barnabas, look at the response of these two guys. They had no small dissension and debate with them. So here you have this great church in Antioch, the place where, Christians, or place where followers of Jesus were first called Christians, a place where the grace of God was made manifest through the diversity of leadership, A church that had developed deep and meaningful relationships. A church that is sending out missionaries. A church that is committed to the gospel and treasuring it is now facing debates and dissension and disputes. This great church. You know what that tells me? That tells me that there's no such thing as a perfect church. And and you know what else that tells me? If there is such thing as a perfect church, I'm inquiring and I'm asking you all, don't go to the perfect church because you will ruin it. (laughs) Because last time I checked, if we're being honest with ourselves, we are not perfect. And the church is a gathering of a bunch of imperfect people. And so if a whole bunch of imperfect people get together, what do you think is about to happen? There's probably going to be some disputing and some frustration. And we've gathered as imperfect people because we recognize our need for perfection. And praise God, our need has been provided for in the man named Jesus Christ, the perfect one. And so we come together to celebrate the perfection of Jesus, that he has rescued us and ransomed us and redeemed us from our imperfection. But we have to realize some disputes are more important than others. This dispute is significant because this is questioning whether or not a person is saved by circumcision. Or in other words, whether or not a person gets to heaven by works. That's a big issue. I've actually heard of other church dissensions and disputes that are not a big issue. I'll give you a couple examples in Texas, real life thing. There actually was a church that split because one of the elders got a bigger portion of food than the other elder. I kid you not, in actual, in Tennessee, there was a church that was totally destroyed. It just ended because the sanctuary temperature was too cold for some and too hot for others. So they just dismantled the church. And another one in Michigan, there was a pastor who came and did the outlandish thing that I'm doing right now, wearing jeans, and the church split. So the pastor resigned, went to another church. Well, the the side of the church that hated pastors and jeans, they drove to the church where he was now interviewing, and they boycotted him and protested him in the parking lot of that new church. Those kind of disputes are stupid. (laughs) However... However, this dispute in Acts 15, not stupid. This is eternally significant. In fact, the rest of the trajectory of the New Testament hinges and is dependent upon this chapter. All of the book of Galatians is about an answer to this question. Do people need to be circumcised in order to be saved? Ephesians 2 and 3 is about this question. Philippians 3 is about this question. First and 2 Thessalonians includes this question. You get my drift? So if we want to understand the New Testament, we have to answer this question, Acts 15. Is circumcision required in order to be saved? Or to put it in modern day terms, is there anything I need to add to my faith in order to be saved? Is it salvation by faith plus anything? We have to answer that question. Now, circumcision in this time, if you look at this in verse 1, it says, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, what in the world is circumcision? Well, according to Genesis 17, here's how Moses uh, introduces circumcision. God says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in his flesh in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now a covenant is a blood-bound oath. It's not a contract. Contracts can be easily broken. Covenants are binding. And so the Jews at this time understood what a covenant was. And reading Genesis 17, they understood that, you know what, if you're ever going to be a part of God's people, the covenant people of God, there's no way you can be included unless you are circumcised. So therefore, all these Jews who have come to faith in Jesus, if they truly want to be a part of God's people, they need to be circumcised or else they're going to be excluded And so that's their rationale. And they quote it straight from the scriptures. And so the question that Paul and Barnabas are now wanting to get answered is, does that still apply? Must I be circumcised in order to be a part of God's covenant people? And must I be circumcised in order to be saved? Well, verse 2 says, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So the church in Antioch sends off Paul and Barnabas as a delegation. They go to Jerusalem and on the way they pass through Phoenicia and Samaria and they begin to just talk about all that God is doing and saving the Gentiles and people are rejoicing and celebrating and all that God is doing. They arrive in Jerusalem. The first thing they do is they gather the church together according to verse 4. They declare all that God had done. People are rejoicing, popping poppers. And it's just an amazing time. And then in verse 5... Some people come from the party of the Pharisees, and they come and they just totally ruin the party. It is necessary, they said, to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Party over. The debate is on. What, what do we do? Is it faith plus something that saves us? What is it? So, verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. The matter is the necessity of circumcision. Do we need to do it in order to be saved? Verse 7, after there had been much debate, let me stop there and just say this. I know what happens in in churches sometimes when we talk about theological debates, people cringe. They're going, oh, gosh, I hate that. So stupid. But we have to understand there there are some debates which are kind of fruitless and pointless. But this is not one of them. This is about eternity. This is about heaven. This is about how people get saved. And I've had over the years people quote to me this verse from 1 Timothy 1, verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And people will come and tell me, Phil, why are we talking about this? It's just a vain discussion, just like Paul's talking about. To talk about theology and debate it is just vanity. It's stupid. I'm going, why in the world would a guy who wrote that be engaged in a debate about it? Do you see the hypocrisy here? So it isn't that debate or dissension or conversations or argumentation about theology are inherently evil. We have to ask the question, what is worth debating? And until we answer that question, we're kind of left without an answer. But in this case, the debate is on because this is significant. This is vital. This is essential. And we got to get an answer to this. So what's going to happen is we're going to have three major leading figures stand up at this gathering called the Council of Jerusalem. They're going to stand up and they're going to make a presentation. And then at the end of it, they're going to come to a conclusion. So first up is Peter. Verse 7, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And do you see what, what he does? Peter stands up, and the first thing that he wants to do is he wants to make sure everyone understands where he's, get, where he's going with this conversation. First of all, he, he reminds them, do you not remember from Acts chapter 10 that I went to Cornelius and I shared the gospel with them? They received the Holy Spirit. They got baptized, and they came to faith. It was through my mouth that that happened. So of course God is wanting the Gentiles to be saved. But then look at, look at what Peter does in, in how he recounts this ministry. He actually uh, has this theme that God is the one who is actively doing the work. And I think this is incredibly encouraging to us. Look, look at what Peter says. And he says in, in verse 7 that God made a choice. And that in verse 8, God knows the heart. God bore witness to them. God gave them the Holy Spirit. God makes no distinction between us and them. God is the one who cleanses their heart. And you see that repetitive uh, conversation that, that Peter's having, and he's trying to get it through our heads that when it comes to the mission of the gospel, do you know who the active agent is who is working it out? It is God. And that means when we are engaged in ministry, we are the people who must be on our knees and pray to God, knowing that it is God alone who is doing the work. It's not up to us. It's not up to how cute we are, not how intellectual we are, how well-trained we are. It is up to God to do the work. And Peter affirms that over and over and over. Guys, this is about God. It's not about us. It's about him. But then he goes into verse 10. Why are you putting God to the test? You know, when you see read in the Old Testament and it talks about putting God to the test, it always is in reference to God declaring something or God's word being spoken and the people either ignoring it or disobeying it. In other words, what Peter is saying is, look, you guys, why are we putting God to the test? God said that we are saved by grace through faith. Why are we putting him to the test? Why are we disobeying him? Why are we not trusting his word? And then he goes on and he says, we're doing this. We're not not trusting God because we're placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. You mean to tell me that we're not going to believe that people, sinners are saved by grace through faith. And what we're going to actually teach now is that in order to be saved, you have to kind of behave and obey in a particular manner. And then you will be qualified for salvation. Are you kidding me? Do you not realize that our fathers were never able to keep the law? Do we not realize that we ourselves are not able to keep the law? Which in modern-day culture sounds something like this. If you want to be a Christian, you better get your act together. You better get more moral. And then once you become moral and get your act together and become financially independent and all this kind of stuff, then you can become a Christian. That's garbage. That is not the gospel. The gospel is this. The gospel is this, we are imperfect, we are lawbreakers, we are sinful, we are broken. And even in view of that, God still wants you. And by coming to God, what ends up happening is you're saved by grace through faith, and then you become moral. Because God will grant you the Holy Spirit to empower you to obey the law. Obeying the law is not how you get the spirit. But the spirit is how you obey the law. And we have to get that ordering correct. Or else we're just putting a yoke on people's necks. And so when we go out and do gospel ministry, we got to get this right. We can't say, hey, you want to be a Christian? Cool, act right. That's not right. Verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It's the fact that we don't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve salvation. And we don't merit it in any way, shape, or form. We aren't saved because we got a good education and we got a good retirement account. We don't get saved because we're moral in the sense that we haven't been imprisoned. We don't get saved because we raise good kids who get good grades and don't swear. But deep down, there's some of us who actually, knowingly or not, we believe that. And we need to stop believing that. Because grace is what saves us. It's God's grace. God offers his salvation to us because we are sinners, not because we aren't. And we have to get that straight. So now, Paul and Barnabas stand up. You want to talk about a mic-dropping situation. Peter gets done, and look at verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent. Because what are you going to do with the message of grace? That's anti-American. No, 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 no. I don't get saved for nothing. I got to work for this. I got to do something. And Americans find grace offensive. Because we are predominantly performance-driven people. And I think these people were struck by grace. Wow. So Paul and Barnabas. They stand up and they relate what signs and wonders, and here's that phrase again, God had done through them among the Gentiles. And now James steps up. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is Peter's other name, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. Now this we may not be shocked by, but what he just said was so startling for the Jewish people that probably it would have, they would have been left gasping. Because what he says is God visited the Gentiles to do something, to take from them, not all of them, but from them, a people for his own name. Now, whenever you see that phrase, for his own name or for the Lord's sake or for his namesake in the Old Testament, it 100% of the time refers to the covenant people of God, also known as the Jews, the nation of Israel. And what it means is God self-identifies with his people, and the people are identified by their God. In other words, God says, you're mine and I'm yours. It's reciprocal. And now James stands up and says, you guys need to understand that God visited the Gentiles in order to take from the Gentiles people for his own name who he will self-identify with. He will claim them for himself. They will be his and he will be theirs. Now the Jews there are going, whoa, wait a minute. I thought we were God's chosen people. What happened? (laughs) You are God's chosen people, but it's no longer by nationality. It's by faith. As Romans 2 talks about, you're a Jew not because you've been circumcised, you're a Jew because you believe. And so now all of a sudden the people are realizing, oh, my goodness, are you telling me that God's people is not just Jews anymore? God's people is a mixture of both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews? That's what we're saying. And do you know whose mouth that comes from? Not from a Gentile, but from a devout Jew. And just to make sure he proves his point, he goes on in verse 15. And with this, this statement, the words of the prophets agree, or in other words, the words of the prophets have been fulfilled. Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And what what Amos, this is Amos chapter 9, what Amos is prophesying is there's coming a day Even though the Jews have been exiled out of their land and into Babylon and various other places, there's coming a day where God will reestablish his kingdom and there will once again be a king who reigns over God's people. And what James is saying is that day has come. Jesus is king. He's the king over a kingdom and his kingdom comprises people from every tongue, tribe, nation and people group. And the whole assembly is probably thinking you've got to be kidding me. This is amazing. Look at verse 17, so that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James comes alongside the Jews and just reminds them God had always wanted to have a people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. And in Jesus Christ, because of his death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, he now is enthroned as King of kings, Lord of lords, And we, as Christians, are inhabitants of his eternal kingdom. You've got to be kidding me. That is amazing. And so James makes this conclusion, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. That phrase at the end of verse 19, turn to God is repentance. Those Gentiles, those non-Jews who repent and turn to God, which means instead of looking at your sin, you're going to turn your back on sin and you're going to look to Christ. Because you trust that Jesus is enough. And you walk away from sin and you walk towards Christ. Those who do that, he says, let's not trouble them anymore. They're saved by grace through faith. End of discussion. No wonder why Paul writes in Ephesians 2 this. Referring to the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. I think I've quoted this almost every time I preached ever. So important. And he came, Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far off, meaning the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, meaning the Jews. For through Jesus, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you, plural, Jew and Gentile, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul wants to make sure we understand that the kingdom of God, the church, that it is comprised of people from every walk of life, both genders, all skin colors, every socioeconomic background. You are all welcomed in the kingdom of God. No distinction. And then James concludes by saying this, but, oh man, here we go again, another But, but. We should write to them, meaning the Gentiles, to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, he gives four restrictions to the Gentiles. And the reason why he gives these four restrictions is because Gentiles were very familiar and oftentimes practiced idol worship, where they sacrificed idols and different animals and they didn't really treat the animals with dignity like God had demanded. And part of the idol worship involved sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia. And porneia means any sexual activity outside of the covenant bond between a man and a woman. Okay? That means anything that isn't that is immoral. (laughs) Okay? So the reason why James says these are things that we should tell the Gentiles to do is, here's his rationale, verse 21, For, because from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Or, in other words, the reason why I want these Gentiles to abstain from these four things is so that we can have peace in the church. These Jews are very adamant about not doing these things. And so, in order to maintain the peace in the church, Gentiles, I want you to abstain from these things. Now, you know, as Christians, we have a lot of freedom. We have freedom in Christ. You can drink and you can not drink. We have freedom. But we have to remember, we also have a freedom not just to say yes to certain things, but we also have the freedom to say no. And so for the Gentiles, Paul is asking them or James is asking them to exercise their freedom to say no to their freedom for the cause of love. Gentiles, if you're going to love the Jews well, then don't do anything that might hinder them from worship. It's out of love. That's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. That's what Paul writes in Romans 14. Out of love. Let's not put a hindrance or a stumbling block in front of our brothers and sisters. Verse 22, here's the conclusion of the council. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. Do you notice how they're all unified? It sounds good to us. We're not going to put any stumbling block in front of the Jews and Gentiles. We're not, we're not going to require them anything beyond, beyond just accepting God's grace through faith. That's how you get saved. So they chose men from among them and sent them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. And they sent them with the following letter. So what they do is they come to a conclusion, okay, we believe we're saved by grace through faith. Nothing else is needed. So let's write this letter and let's send it to the Gentiles and inform inform them about our conclusion. But they do so with two men, with Judas and Silas. Why? Well, think about this. If you just send a couple people uh, as a delegation to Jerusalem to figure out what an answer to a pivotal theological question is, along the way back, you may think, huh, whatever verdict they render, can I trust it? How do I know that Paul and Barnabas on their way back from Jerusalem to Antioch, how do I know that they didn't stop under a broom tree somewhere and they just decided, well, I know the apostle said this, but let's go ahead and let's forge it and actually let's say this. Well, one way to get away from the potential accusation of forgery is to actually send people with Paul and Barnabas to authenticate and to corroborate the truthfulness of the council's finding. Another reason why it's really important is this. Why Silas and and Judas are so important is because of verse 23. The brothers, both the... This is the letter, by the way. Here's the letter that they wrote. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Here it is. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words... Unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, unity, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you see why Silas and Judas are important? Because there were some people who left the company of the apostles in Jerusalem and went to Antioch and began to teach a false gospel in the name of James and Peter. In other words, they're thinking, hey, you know what? Let's go down to Antioch and and let's let's, let's fix this problem. The problem is grace. Let's fix it. So they go down to Antioch and preach a false gospel. And, And the church in Antioch is like, no, 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 we're not having any of this. You guys go back there and you confront them. And you tell the church in Antioch that we never sent those knuckleheads. We never told them that they, wanted, they, they needed to teach and give this instruction. They're not a part of this. They're preachers of the false gospel. And we need to confront today, we need to see this as an opportunity for us or actually really an encouragement to us that we can't sit idly by, brothers and sisters of Golden Hills Community Church, while false gospels are being preached all over There are so many people in the name of Jesus who are preaching this nonsense. Here's what Paul says in Titus chapter 1, verses 9. He says that leaders must hold firm to the trustworthy word that is taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine. And look at this and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Verse 13. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Do you see what Paul's trying to say here? Brothers and sisters, there are people preaching a false gospel and we cannot allow that to continue. We have to be... Confrontational. Now, what are some of the most prevalent false gospels in our day? I'll give you one, an easy one. The sexual revolution is a false gospel. Some Christians are trying to change 2,000 years of teaching on human sexuality. And here's the gospel everything was good, but then everything got broken because of sin. The solution is to have everything restored again. And that solution is found in Jesus Christ. And when we come to faith in him, we will live happily ever after. So here's the gospel, the false gospel of the sexual revolution. In the beginning was sexuality. But now sexuality has been messed up. How? By being constrained. So what's the solution? Throw off all the constraints and you will live happily ever after. That is a false Gospel, And those who have bought into it, they're going to find soon enough that their liberated sexuality will not satisfy. And so we, as Christians, we don't need to go and confront the world. There, we can't expect the world, the unbelievers, to have our uh, ethical standards. But we can expect Christians to have Christian standards. So we have to confront This false gospel of the sexual revolution. Another false gospel, which is easy, easy to see in our world, is the false gospel of the prosperity gospel, which basically says this. In the beginning, there was a lot of good stuff. But you know what? It's not so good anymore. Some people have and some people don't have. And if you want to be somebody who does have, what you need to do is this. In the name of Jesus, claim that it's yours, it's your right, it's your privilege, and you seek favor from God, and he will bless it and give it to you, and you'll live happily ever after, accumulating the world's goods. Jesus has some things to say about that. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? That's a false gospel. And if you look up the top 10 selling Christian books on the list, You'll see of the ten, there's probably at least six up there that are, that are advocating the prosperity gospel. This is prevalent in our culture, which means some of you all bought those books. <laughs> and so I have to confront. The true gospel needs to be advocated, and it is okay to rebuke and to correct when there is error. And remember, this letter was a unifying thing. Verse 30. So they were sent off. They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. After they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. you see what happens? They gather the church together. They share the letter the good news that we are saved by grace through faith and there is nothing in addition to faith that we need to add in order to be saved. You don't need faith and morality. You don't need faith in circumcision. You don't need faith and financial security. You need faith, trust that Jesus is enough. And you will be saved. And that is a unifying thing for us in the church. That's what brings about unity. I'm going to read this from Ephesians 4. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How do we do that? Verse 4. We realize that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Brothers and sisters, that's our unifying doctrine, the gospel. And then he goes on and write this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, so people like myself, for a purpose to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, pastors like myself are given to the church to build up the church by equipping them. And through being equipped, you will be sent out to accomplish the work of the gospel. And that will be something that brings about unity according to verse 13. Now look at verse 14. There's a so that. Here's the grand purpose of all this. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Do you see right here what the role of the pastor is? The role of the pastor is to preach theology. And through theology, what ends up happening is you are equipped. And through being equipped, you are sent out to do the work of ministry. And that will unify us. And it will also prevent us from being tossed back and forth from the waves. And I know a lot of people just, they don't want theological preaching. Too bad. I, as a pastor, will not be disobedient to make you comfortable. I will not do it. And Larry will not do it. And so we must preach theology in order for you all to be equipped because, according to Ephesians 4, through you being equipped by our teaching of theology, the work of the ministry is going to get done. And, brothers and sisters, there's a lot to do. And so we need to get equipped. We need to preach. We need to pray. And we need to trust and you know what else we need to do with Romans 15? They're going to kill me at children's ministry for taking so long. <laughs> Let me just do this and we're done. Romans 15. And, and, and this is a, a, how, how Paul concludes the whole gen, Jew-Gentile relationship. This is how he concludes it and says we're one. And this, this is so beautiful. And, and watch this, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we, Jew and Gentile, might have hope. So may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, plural, Jews and Gentiles, to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice, that's what we just heard the choir sing about, with one voice we can glorify the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another. The word is be hospitable to one another as Christ has been hospitable to you for the glory of God." Do you see what that the the marching orders for us as a church is? Welcome one another from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every people group, every socioeconomic background, every skin color. We as a church are to welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed us. And the conclusion, if you read on, is rejoicing, rejoicing. And so you get to verse 13. May God, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing faith so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Brothers and sisters, we have got to pray that God would do the work of bringing many people to himself to save them from their sins and give them life. We're not asking people to adopt a particular lifestyle, a Christian subculture. We're asking people to come and have life. So, God, help us, we pray. Your word has been so fruitful in commissioning people, in inspiring people, and in calling people to radical obedience. And so, I pray, God, that you would unleash the spirit in our church so that we would respond with radical obedience of welcoming people who are different than ourselves and being committed to them for a a long time in relationship to share the gospel. And I pray, God, that being sent out to declare the gospel of grace, I pray that you would unify our church and you would strengthen us because of our commitment to you and to the truth, to the gospel, and to your grace. So, God, help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.